Uh, I've asked my friend John Gialuca sitting here to pray. He declines the use of a microphone because he thinks he's a child of John Wesley and can speak to 50,000 people at once without a mic. Did you know that Wesley could do that? Yeah. Five foot four, 120 pounds, he could speak to 50,000 people at one time without a mic. So replicate John Wesley for it. <laughs> Thank you, John. Okay, uh, you have a handout with pictures on it. I'd like you to get that real quickly. Come on in, you're not late. Uh, there's a seat here. There's two there. Okay, um, it's time in our course now that we kind of step, step back just a smidgen and try to get an uh, overview of Hebrews. If you've been reading Hebrews, if you have tried to read it, uh, have you experienced that this is a sustained argument? Has this been part of your recognition as you read? I'm getting no recognition on anybody's face here, so <laughs> does that mean no one's been reading, or yes, you so agree with this? This is a sustained argument, and it's kind of hard for us Westerners who have been gradually a accustomed to getting information in sound bite information, right? Boop, 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 and not really connected to sometimes sustain the flow of this book. So, uh, before we go any further, I want to just talk briefly this morning on three big ideas that the book of Revelation deals with, illustrated by this handout, and show you where we are in the course. Okay, and these are three core human beings that or three core human needs that human beings have that uh, both Judaism in the Older Testament and also Christianity in the New Testament addresses, which is what the book of Hebrews is all about. And let's start with the first one, revelation. Human beings need to have revelation from God. This is the premise of the entire uh, Jewish Bible and experience, and God provides that revelation to human beings because we need it. So, uh, Zev has been teaching the last two weeks in particular about the first part of the book of Hebrews, which is all about this idea of revelation. You can see on your little cheat sheet that I made for you, there's <clears throat> one, two, three blanks, and so this now becomes a, t a little oral quiz. What are the three main revelations that God used in the Older Testament that the author of Hebrews speaks to in the process of coming to his conclusion in that section? Three main ways that God speaks, yes? Uh, well, there is, it's the one God that's speaking. So yes, you're correct on that. But what are the three ways? Prophets. Prophets. Uh, not the gospel, because he's talking about um, the Older Testament at this point. The three ways that God had spoken to people. Angels. Angels. Uh, with who? Yes, with Moses. Okay, so now we got a Mo. <laughs> See, you did pretty good. So um, you get a what? Seventy-five percent, because most of you didn't know the third one. So <laughs> that's okay. Remember those three things. So in the course of the argument, what's he trying to say? Look, God's been speaking many times, many ways through prophets, through angels, through Moses. What's his crunching conclusion? Uh, Jesus is superior, and also what? Jesus is superior to angels, Moses, and prophets, and thus represents what? God. Uh, well, yes, God, but uh, something about God in Revelation. Yes! What God's did you? final message. God's final message. Okay, so that's the argument. Now, if you want to understand the author of Hebrews, you have to follow that train of reasoning and say to yourself, do I agree with this? Do I think this argument that he is making makes sense that Jesus is God's final revelation? All right, now, uh, I'm going to jump to the third part 
because we're not going to talk about that today very much, but the third stage of his argument in this letter is called covenant. Uh, and covenant means relationship, and human beings need to have a relationship with God. And so, and one of the things that is comforting to human beings is to have ways to ceremonialize and to establish and to make sure that we all know that we have an agreement in legal terms. What do we do when we want to make sure that we all agree on the same thing and we, rem we remember it? What do we do? Well, we write it down and then what do we do? Uh, we, uh, we can get it notarized, we can get, but we got to drag some pe the class of creatures in here. You know, the lawyers. <laughs> and they have to come in <clears throat> and, uh, you know, establish everything that's been done. And an agreement has made me. A contract has been made. A covenant has been, and to use Hebrew terms, cut. You've cut a covenant. Well, God understands human beings have this need, so God cuts a covenant with human beings. Did so in the Older Testament. Uh, through Moses, which is what we call what? Uh, the uh, covenant of the Torah, the covenant of the law. It's more than the Ten Commandments, as you remember. There's 613 commandments. The ten are just the cheating headlines. So once you get those mastered, you only have 603 to go. Okay? So... The covenant of the law is, according to the book of Hebrews, now not thrown in the trash can or disregarded. That's why I don't like to use the term Old Testament. I found this out teaching at Malone. When you say old to young people, then it means what? Irrelevant. Passe. Uh, to do something to be flung away. No, no. It's... It's relevant in the sense that God has used it as the basis to establish what the New Testament calls what? A new, a new covenant, yes. And so he's going to try to show that. Now, just setting you up, that's, that's the flow of his argumentation, Hebrews. We need revelation, God's given it to us in Christ. We need a covenant, God's established a new one in Christ. But at the heart of the letter, which is what Zev's going to teach about most today, I am going to merely illustrate for us today and then he will explain in depth what it means. Now, to understand the book of Hebrews, you really do have to understand the heart and core of the book that he alluded to last week, which is Hebrews 7, uh, Leviticus 17.11. I want you to find Leviticus 17.11. This passage, you remember... Uh, Zev told us last week that the, what's the first book that Jewish kids uh, study? Leviticus! And so here we are at the core 1711. If you can just get this one concept it will enable you to understand not only the book of Leviticus but also understand the whole rest of the letter of Hebrews. Now I have my young assistant coming up here. Uh, you're going to come and help me today? Yes, come on. Kindly introduce yourself to everyone. I'm Madeline. Okay. Why don't you look at her? I'm Madeline. Okay. Um, I want to ask you a personal question. I don't want to know any details. Have you ever done anything bad in your life? Yeah. You, have you ever sinned? Yes. Okay, then you qualify. You, you can be my assistant. Being much older than you, I can tell you that I have sinned way more than you have. All right, so you come here. She now becomes our representative, in quote, sinner. <clears throat> I get to play the priest. But every priest knows what about themselves. That they're sinners too, and they need this too. So this isn't a superiority thing. This is a tutorial that some humans do for others. Sorry. <laughs> now, 1711 says what in the Hebrew? Yeah, 
You all understood that. <laughs> okay, so he's chanting the Hebrew scriptures. The life of a creature, the text says, is where? In its blood. And I have given it to you, the it being the blood, to do what? To make atonement. Is your translation say atonement? Okay, atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that does what? That makes atonement. Okay, so here's the system that the Old Testament lays out for us. Uh, on a, a, a very regular basis, sinners would have to bring at their own expense either a pet lamb or buy one on the way. It had to be a good lamb, not some old raggedy thing, uh, something that would be precious to you. You'd have to bring it to the priest. And then when you brought it, <coughs> uh, you would put it on the altar there. And what you would have to do is put your hand on top of that lamb's head. And then at that point, you would recite your sins. Not to me, but I'm just there as a witness, kind of through me, but you're really reciting them to God. The things that you've done wrong and the things that you need uh, atonement for. Okay, so you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you did it. You, you confessed all of your sins. Now, you see that word on the board? Uh, I want you to look at it real carefully, and Zev's going to help me here. Atonement. Atonement. What does it mean? When they got to this Hebrew word, koper, which is what they tried to do atonement to translate for, it, it's such a thick, rich, deep word, and they didn't know how to do There was no one-to-one -one in English that they could use. So they just made up a word, which you can do that. You can make up words. They're called neologisms. You just make them up. And they made it up. So, Zev, put a dash after the T. Now put an ash, a dash after the E. And what do you have? At one minute. That captures the core and essence of what copair means. I've given the blood to make copair for your sins. Now, copera really means to cover, and the notion is, okay, you've confessed your sins. So where's the life of a creature? In its blood. In its blood. What happens when you sin? Uh, you have to take the blood of the lamb. Yeah, yeah, but what happens to you when, when or you and I when we sin? What, what happens? The wages of sin, the result of sin. What is it? Yeah. The wages of sin is death. So you're dead because you sinned, the lamb is alive right now, and you put your hand on its head, and you confess your sins, and then the priest takes a knife and does what? Kills it. Slits the lamb's throat. Now imagine that. You've got to sit there with your hand on it, and what's the lamb going to do now? <laughs> It'll fall over. The blood runs out on the altar, and you're standing there, and you're watching this, and you're supposed to understand what? That you're... You... you your sin killed this lamb. And, but where's life? In the blood. In the blood. Where'd the blood go? The On the altar. But where'd the life go? Into you. Into you. Do you see that? Do you see that? They did this over and over and over and over and over again for 1,500 years. It is the life of a creature that makes atonement. Now, of course, Zev's going to teach you in much greater detail uh, what this means to Jesus, but the whole thesis of the argument of Hebrews and the New Testament is what? All these 1,500 years of ceremonial lambs finally reached their culmination and climax when? In Christ. And that's why John the baptizer called him what? Do you remember this? The lamb, you, I know you know this, the lamb of God. Of God that does what? That comes to save us. That comes to save us and take away the sins of the world. So in Christ, then we have this climactic event of atonement at one minute by putting faith in him. Now Zev's going to uh, teach us in more detail from the book of Hebrews. Hope this helps you understand everything that's in this complicated book at this section. Okay, take it from here, Zev. Thank you so much.
<laughs> Thank you. Hey, you should go in peace, though. You got, go in peace because your sins are forgiven now, right? Okay. I don't know how you follow something as dramatic as that. Uh, I did want to, before I start, I think I, I did want to clarify something that, you know, I know I realized I may have touched a bit of a nerve last week. Um, and I understand some people were under the impression that I was actually asserting that I believed Muhammad had actually had the Quran revealed to him by Gabriel. Well, I think if I actually believed that, I'd be a Muslim. I wouldn't be a Christian. Um, I think one of the things you need to realize about my position, having been a member of a religious minority in a predominantly Christian culture, it gives me an attitude of identifying with other religious and other minorities as well. Because, you know, we've been the victims of prejudice and discrimination. A number of years ago, there was a book published, I can't remember the author's name, called The Ordeal of Civility. And it was about those Jewish intellectuals who in the 18th and 19th century emerged into European society and became integrated into European intellectual life pretty much at the cost of their Jewish practice and identity. But what they experienced was a sense of dual alienation. They were, in a sense, alienated from their own Jewish roots. But by the same token, they were still more or less alienated from general European society, which still regarded them as what? As Jews, and therefore still other. And what this did is gave them an extraordinarily independent turn of mind as cultural critics of the predominating culture. And his prime example of that was Sigmund Freud who basically turned a critical lens on all of culture, really, with a book like Civilization and its Discontents. So I think that, you know, I have a tendency to want to give other religious groups a bit of the benefit of the doubt, but I think one thing that even if you wanted to give Muhammad the maximum benefit of the doubt and say that an angel did speak to him, what does that put him on a par with in terms of what we've seen in the letter to the Hebrews? The prophets of what? The Older Testament. Okay. And now, who is superior to all the revelations that have come to prophets by angels? Christ as God's definitive revelation. Okay, in other words, another way of looking at it, one way that the letter to the Hebrews characterizes Christ as the radiance of God's glory. Remember that passage? He is the radiance of God's glory and the express image of his character, okay? The express imprint of his character. And therefore, if Christ is the radiance of God's glory, what does light tend to do? It tends to cast shadows, does it not? What we are saying about past revelation is that all of past revelation, including the prophets, that which was revealed by angels, even Moses and the Torah, are like shadows cast by the radiance of Christ. Well, if Christ can cast shadows back into the past, it's not impossible to cast shadows into the future. So what do Muslims have in the Quran? They have, as it were, a latter-day Older Testament. But that's all they have. They do not have the definitive revelation of God's character, of God's nature, that we have in Christ. And I think that that's, that gives us perhaps a little bit... Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, I don't care whether you want to take the stance of conflict or dialogue or evangelism. If you're going to have any relationship with Muslims, you better be able to understand the world from their point of view. Uh, back in, um, I was down in Texas at the time, uh, and in between jobs as a priest, when Operation Desert Shield took place. How many people remember Operation Desert Shield? What was Operation Desert Shield? That was what came before Desert Storm. Operation Desert Shield 
is when President Bush, the first President Bush, put together the International Coalition and brought troops and put them in the desert in between the Iraqi forces in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Now, there was only one problem. He was also putting them between Baghdad, the ancient capital of the Islamic Caliphate, and Mecca, the holiest city in Islam, and most of those troops were Western Christians. Now, how does that look to a Muslim? That's why at that time I said, I better understand Islam, because whether I agree with it or not, if we're going to get involved in a land war in the Middle East, which I don't think is a good idea at all, then we better understand what we're doing, and we better understand our adversaries. So I hope that clarifies you know, what I said last week, because I really want to get on to this subject. Now, what we're talking about is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. In many ways, this is the heart of the argument of the letter to the Hebrews. Now, what are the functions of a high priest? We just had one demonstrated. To offer sacrifices. Exactly. Okay. Oh, you're going to flip it over? I forgot. You can do that. Yeah. Just don't do this as a politician. They'll accuse you of flip-flopping. Okay. To offer sacrifices. Okay. And what is the purpose of a sacrifice? To make atonement. Okay. To make atonement for sin. I want to basically take a quick look at some quick little passages in Leviticus around where John talked, actually a little bit before where John talked. Since I know you all just love Leviticus, okay, and can't wait to dig more in depth to the sacrificial system, Take a look at the latter part of chapter 4, verse 31. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 31. Anybody care to say what is this? Starting, and the priest. Anybody? Well, just the latter part. Ah! Okay. In other words, it's talking about in this way, through the whole process of offering the sacrifice, the priest will make atonement. You also want to see the same thing if you look at the latter part of verse 35 and in chapter 5, verses 6b, 10b, and 13a. I'm not going to make you read it. It's all pretty much the same. In this way, the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. All right. Now, how is Jesus our great high priest? Come on, folks. This is a participatory exercise. Yes? He offered up a sacrifice of himself. He offered up a sacrifice of himself. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Okay. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, anybody here ever offered a sacrifice? Yes. 
Well, I see they've never used one of the uh, favorite little offertory sentences when they're about to take up the offering. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's the only problem with a living sacrifice? It crawls off the altar. Okay, so how does a sacrifice work? Well, we're going to find out. Now, you should have another handout there. It's called The Animal Sacrifices in Leviticus. Okay, this is taken from a book on the atonement by Leon Morris, who I think is an Australian evangelical, I'm not sure, but um, the atonement, its meaning and significance, and this is just so good, I basically don't think that anything more needs much to be added to this. I'm not going to go through the whole handout, I'm basically going to go through the common elements that we have. Okay. The worshiper has to bring the animal near. Well, what does that mean? That the, the, word, the, sa- the word in Hebrew is lehakriv, to bring near. What is taking place? What is represented when you bring near an animal to be sacrificed? What? You're giving up the animal. You're approaching God. But uh, how, how are you approaching God? You're approaching God with a living animal. Okay, you don't yet have the blood. Where's the blood? It's still inside the animal. Okay, you are bringing near an animal. Now, what is significant about your reason for approaching God? What are you approaching God in order to do? What? To confess, to be forgiven of your sin. Okay, who has the sin? We do. Does the animal have any sin? Ah, animals are completely innocent. They are sinless. So you, the sinner, are bringing near to God a sinless animal. But what's the problem? You're a sinner. The priest is a sinner. The animal is innocent. So how do we work this connection? What we have to do, the worshiper now lays hands on the head of the animal and confesses their sin. This is extremely important to keep in mind. What does it mean when I lay hands on someone or something? Transferal, okay. So I'm transferring my sin to the animal. Okay, what is the animal transferring to me? It's innocence. How does that transfer work? What does it mean when, and, and, and forget about, you know, this idea of transference, of an interchange. What does it mean when I ha- place my hands on someone, like, you know, if, if I were to come and place my hands on you here, okay? What is that doing? It's connecting us. It's creating a bond, all right? The important thing to keep in mind is from this point on, You do not have a human being over here and an animal over here. You have one living system. You have a bond. So what does that mean? What happens to the one is happening to both. What's happening to the one is happening to both. Got a marvelous example. This may be getting us a little too far astray from modern physics. It was something, I have a brother who is much more brilliant than I am. He's a molecular biologist. But his uh, undergraduate work was in uh, quantum physics. And he talked about how if you bombard an electron with a photon of sufficient energy, the electron will split into two quarks. 
which are the more basic particles that make up protons, electrons, and neutrons. I grew up with protons, electrons, and neutrons. It was so easy. We didn't have to worry about quarks and mesons and bosons and everything. But at any rate, it'll, it, two quarks, and one of the characteristics of a quark is that it has a quality which they call spin. And these two quarks will go rocketing off at the speed of light in opposite directions at a 180 degree angle, and their spins will be opposite. But the spin of a quark can be affected by a magnetic field. So what happens if one of the quarks passes through a magnetic field that reverses its spin? No matter how far apart the two quarks are, the other quark will instantaneously reverse its spin as well. This is weird. Because what it's saying is that these two quarks that are speeding away from each other at the speed of light are not two separate entities. They are a single entity in space-time. In a similar way, I lay hands on the head of an animal, we are no longer two separate entities in spiritual space-time. We're a single entity. Keep that thought in mind because it will be very important when we look at the ritual of the Day of Atonement and what happens with the two goats. Okay. Now, there is a little bit of a difference here between what John demonstrated. The worshiper is responsible for slaughtering the animal themselves. It is the worshiper who has to do that. Okay, now, the basic problem is in order to actually do that, you have to have all of the observations and the skills of a ritual slaughterer so that the animal will be a kosher animal when you slaughter it. Uh, now, you just offered a sacrifice. This is hardly the right kind of knife. But here, you slaughter the animal. Okay, do you want to do that? No. Okay, so what are you going to do? You're going to give it back to me. Okay. Now, that little exchange in Hebrew called chalipin means that I am now, as the priest, acting as your agent. And again, it's by grasping that knife, both of us grasping that knife, we become united. Okay, and now I am acting on your behalf. Now, what does it mean to say that you are the one who's responsible for killing that animal? You're the one who sinned. You're the one who's responsible for the death of this animal. Because why? Who should really be the one dying? You. Exactly. Okay? All of this is meant to really forcibly instruct you. Now... You've obtained the blood, and the priest places the blood in the prescribed place. Now, here it gets very interesting, because certain kinds of sin offerings, the priest places the blood on the altar of sacrifice outside of the tabernacle, outside of the temple. However, what if it is the entire people who have committed sin? What if it is a prince among the people who has committed sin? It has to go into the holy place and be placed on the horns of the altar of incense and possibly sprinkled before the veil that is between the holy place and the holy of holies. And then, of course, once a year, where do you have to bring the blood? All the way into the Holy of Holies. All the way into the Holy of Holies. Okay? And in the days of the tabernacle and the first temple, when you had the Ark of the Covenant, what did you have on top of the Ark of the Covenant? You had a piece called the kaporet, usually translated mercy seat, which has the same root as kafar, to cover to cover guilt. 
And so you had to sprinkle the blood there. Now, what's going on? Why is this that the more severe, if you will, the sin, the farther into the tabernacle it has to go? What does the tabernacle represent? Does it represent God or what? What? God's house? What? Where God dwells? Okay. Uh, when God spoke to Moses and said that he wanted him to build a sanctuary, what it says, they will make me a sanctuary that I may tabernacle in their midst, that I may dwell in their midst. What did God want? What? Community. Who said community? Yes, relationship. The tabernacle or the temple was the place where the relationship between the God of Israel and the people of Israel took place, was worked out. So what does it mean that I have to bring the blood into the tabernacle? What has happened to that relationship? Hmm? Excuse me? No, but what's happened to the relationship as a result of my sin? I'm sorry, everybody's talking at once. It's broken. It's poisoned. Sin poisons the relationship and therefore it pollutes the sanctuary. When the priest places the blood, he is purifying the sanctuary in order to restore the relationship. This is so important because where did Jesus bring his blood? Where did Jesus bring his blood? Into what tabernacle? The original heavenly tabernacle, which was the pattern that Moses was shown in order to build the tabernacle on earth. The heavenly sanctuary. Okay? That's very important, the placement of the blood, because in a sense, that's why the slaughter has to take place, to obtain that blood. And again, what is the blood? It's the life. It's the life. And therefore, you have to restore life to a dead relationship. And then finally, the priest burns, no, that's not finally, the priest burns part or all of the offering on the sacrifice. What's going on here on the altar? That part or all of the sacrifice has to be burned on the altar. And we're not just talking about cooking here. It can't be used for food. So who does it, because who does it belong to? Oh, it belongs to God. Okay, this is the part of the offering that goes to God. It's burned up. It is no longer available for secular use. Okay. What else is burning up on that altar? Your sin. Ah, the sin is burning up on the altar, being carried away in smoke. And finally, disposal of the rest of the carcass. Where the animal, where it's not a, you know, a burnt offering, where everything gets burnt, there is still something left over. And what I now want you to do is look at this handout. On, and on that sixth line, where it says sin and guilt offerings at the top, and in that bottom line, what does it say? Is done with the rest of the carcass. It's for the priest. Okay, it's eaten by priestly males for sin and guilt offerings. Why on earth would the priest be eating your sin or guilt offering? What's going on here? Somebody's just laid their hands on an animal, confessed their sin, transferred the sin to the animal, the animal's been slaughtered, the blood has been placed, portions have been burnt on the altar, and now what are you as the priest going to do? Do you want to eat that? 
take a look at This is in the book of Numbers, which is, I know, another one of your favorite books of the Torah. Okay. And I'm looking in particular at the very first verse of chapter 18 of Numbers. Who wants to read chapter 18, verse 1? Yes. And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and my sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary, and thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. Whoa! What's part of the function of a priest? What happens to the iniquity? The priest has to bear it. This is another function of the priest as offerer of sacrifices is that in effect the priest is the one who bears the iniquity for the people. That's a pretty heavy load, isn't it? Would you like to be a priest now? No. And if you're the high priest, whose iniquity do you have to bear? Everybody's. That's quite a burden, isn't it? What does this say then if Jesus is our great high priest? Whose iniquity does he bear? Everybody's. The whole people of God. Now that, as far as I'm concerned, is good news. That's gospel. Okay? Now, offering sacrifices is one thing that a priest does. Is there anything else that a high priest does? What? No, we've are, that's part of sacrifice. What? Ah, intercession. Okay. I'd like you to look just a little bit earlier in the book of Numbers. Now, the reason I know this part of Numbers very well is that this was my bar mitzvah Torah portion. Okay, there are some people who think that this may have been somewhat prescient. Why? Because this Torah portion starts with the rebellion of Korach. (laughs) All right. Now, we had a thing, Korach, Dathan, Aviram, their whole company have been swallowed up, and all of these people have been burnt to a crisp who offered incense to God, And now what happens is the people start complaining. Look at chapter 16, verse 41 and following. Anybody want to start reading there? What? Numbers. Numbers 16. The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Continue? Yes. Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. Okay. 
I want you to just savor this image. This is an extraordinary image of a high priest standing between the living and the dead offering incense. What was the incense a symbol of? What? No. Not sins. Prayer. Ah. He was standing between the living and the dead offering prayer to God to stop the plague. Boy, isn't that a beautiful image of what it means to be a priest? Of both the responsibility and the privilege. I know when I was an Episcopal priest, I kept coming back to that passage over and over and over again because I knew that was my job. To stand between the living and the dead. Well, fortunately, we've got a better high priest who will do that. And we look at Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verses 2 through 4. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, as well as for those of the people. And one okay, is not no, I'm sorry, I had the wrong passage. That's not what I wanted to see. Um, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Boy, now that is a passage to conjure with. Jesus offered up prayers and intercessions with tears, with loud cries, to the one who was able to deliver him from death. Who was that? God the Father. Okay, but what do you think about he learned obedience through what he suffered? In other words, obedience is a lifelong process. It is something in which Jesus himself even grew through suffering. What did he suffer? He suffered everything we do. He suffered everything that we do, okay? This total identification with us, with the human condition, in all of its brokenness, in all of its pain, in all of its suffering. And by the way, that's something you don't find anywhere but in Christianity. I got news for you. Moses did not suffer and die for me. Um, Muhammad didn't suffer and die for me. Buddha didn't suffer and die for me. Krishna didn't suffer and die for me. Only Jesus did. That's something unique. And that means that he is really able, and who is he praying for? He's praying for you and me. He's praying for you and me. Okay. Yes. Okay. Jesus was tempted as we are. What was the difference? He didn't give in. Who is that a contrast with? Who's that a contrast with? Not just us. Who's the real contrast when you say that he was tempted in every way as we are yet did not sin? Who was the original one who gave in to temptation? Adam. Aha. Take a good look sometime at the fifth chapter of Hebrews at the whole discourse about the first and the last Adam in order to really understand what's at stake in the issue of temptation. Okay? 
He was really tempted. It had to be. But by the same token, he didn't give in. Why? Why was it important that he not sin? Ah! Because he could not serve as a sacrifice if he were not perfect. If he had sins of his own, then he could not have offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. Now, what are the qualifications for becoming a high priest? If you wanted to be a high priest, how did you have to qualify? First of all, how did you qualify under the Older Testament? You were born into it, okay? You were born of the descendants of Aaron. And at the time of Jesus, in fact, and this was a matter of some dispute, it was not just the house of Aaron, but a particular descendant of Aaron, the house of Tzadok, the high priest and the start, who helped start the second temple. Okay? Now, who were the party that were called after Tzadok? Z-A-D-O-K. Those were the Sadducees. Okay, the Tzadukim in Hebrew. Because it was their family that had the monopoly on the high priesthood. But how did they come by the high priesthood? Genealogy from whom? Who were they descended from originally? What? What? But who in the Levite tribe in particular? Aaron, thank you. Aaron, how did Aaron become high priest? <laughs> it certainly didn't hurt, but... Remember we were talking about the rebellion of Korach? That was exactly the accusation he made. What kind of nepotism is this, Moses? You appoint your own brother, the high priest? What are we, chopped liver? I never understood that expression. I happen to love chopped liver. No, how, what is it that made Aaron the high priest? Who made Aaron the high priest? Not Moses. God. Oh, so you have to be called to the office. Okay. And if you look back, again, keep in mind, what is Hebrews doing? He is tracing this back to its root in the Torah. Always. Everything gets traced back to its root in the Torah. And so we have, look at the Exodus 28.1. In the middle of the description of the building of the tabernacle, I'll find it in a moment. Here we go. Exodus 28. What's the problem? You have too many ribbon markers. You can never tell the right one. Okay, what is, would someone like to read Exodus 28, 1, please? Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Makes Bingo. Bingo. In other words, God is saying, bring them near. Bring them near to me. So what is this? This is God appointing them. This is God appointing them. Now we can look at Hebrews. Oh, my, 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 my. Yes. 
five one. Five one through four. Someone want to? Okay, I'll read it. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay? And so on. And also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, and then we'll get into the rest of that later. Okay? In other words, calling, vocation. You have to be called to the office. Yes, John? Well, that was true in the time of Jesus. But, you know, we're talking here about theological argumentation largely geared towards people who were reading the Septuagint Bible. It's really kind of interesting because the letter to the Hebrews shows very little interest in the actual practice of the temple in Jerusalem. He is constantly harking back to what the temple in Jerusalem was modeled on, which was what? The tabernacle in the wilderness. Okay, that becomes the pattern, and that itself is only a type or shadow of the original pattern, which is the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, now, there's one other qualification for high priesthood in that passage I just read. What? Well, God has to appoint you, but one other qualification for being a high priest. What did a high priest... Well, what, what... I mean, yeah, I mean, leave that aside for a moment, but there's something else that a high priest was able to do and had to do. It was in that passage. What? Deal gently with the ignorant. In other words, sympathy. Okay. Here I got a little one of my pet peeves is the misuse of the term empathy in modern culture. The word sympathy has become something of a dirty word, whereas the word empathy is all the fashion. But actually, if you want to look at it, sympathy, sympathos, is the exact Greek equivalent of the Latin compassion, which means to suffer with. Okay? And the important point is compassion is very important. Empathy, suffering in somebody, I'm not sure that really does them any good. Because what are that doing? I'm getting my suffering mixed up with yours. That's not necessarily going to help you. In fact, originally the word empathy, it refers to a purely physiological reaction to the pain of another. In other words, somebody hits you, you know, hits you over the head and I go, ouch. That's empathy. Sympathy is when I go and say, you know, that happened to me once. Let me see what I can do to help you. Okay? So that really is the clear nature of a high priest. In terms of the office of Jesus as high priest, is to offer sacrifice and to make intercession. Now, does Jesus continue to offer sacrifice? No. He did it once for all. Does he continue to make intercession? You betcha. You betcha. That is an amazing thought, that right now, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is making constant intercession for each and every one of us. 
and the qualifications, sympathy, he suffered as we do, and calling. He was called to the office by God. Okay, now, we did have a mention of this character, Melchizedek. I just did have room for it. That's our assignment for next week. Melchizedek, dead or alive. Who is or was Melchizedek? What does he represent? Why is the letter to the Hebrews discussing the high priesthood of Christ in terms of this strange biblical figure? That's what we'll deal with next week. Okay, God bless you all. Have a nice day, and uh, see you next week. Any questions, I should say? <laughs>